Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Teosi Onwemina, and I'm super excited to have an amazing guest on the show today, Dr. Vikram Paralka. And Vikram, I just want to thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, Vikram, let's get right down to it. How did you how did you start on this journey? What led you from being a clinician to becoming a clinician scientist? How did that happen? So my journey, I guess my journey begins with my childhood. So I grew up in Mumbai and both of my late parents were doctors. And you know, my dad was a surgeon, my mom was an OB-GYN. And so I grew up very familiar with medical lingo around the dining table. And at the same time, I was also very, very interested in science and scientific experiments. And so I was always the kid who had a chemistry set or was looking at things under a, a blood cells under a microscope or, you know, dissecting algae or things like that. And I, I just loved science. And I also really enjoyed listening to my parents talk about medicine. And I grew up with the assumption that, so both of my parents were in private practice, they were not doing research, but I grew up with the assumption that, oh, well, every academic doctor must have, you know, a little lab on the side where they just do the clinical work. And then after the day is done, they go and do some pipetting. And so <laughs> it was with this idea and naive idea in mind that I went to medical school in Mumbai. And I really loved learning about medicine, you know, anatomy and physiology, bio biochemistry, especially in molecular biology. But I also began to realize about midway through med school that the uh, that most doctors simply don't do research or have the bandwidth to do research. I think clinical medicine itself is so all-consuming that most of your day goes in taking care of patients. And it was maybe about the end of my second year that I realized that I wanted to also have a basic science lab in addition to becoming, being a clinical scientist, in addition to being a clinician. And that's when I also realized that that kind of career track would not be possible in India simply because the infrastructure and funding doesn't exist over there. And so I began to think of coming to the United States or to the UK to pursue my further studies. And during my medical school, I did one research rotation in a laboratory in India. But beyond that, I really did not have any concrete research training. And so when I came to the United States, I really wasn't eligible for any of the PSP track, you know, the physician scientist pathway tracks. And so I began a categorical residency. I also decided specifically not to do a PhD because I felt it would just take five to six years out of the schedule and then I had to go back and do my clinical year. So, so I came to Temple University, I did my residency, then I was a chief resident, and then I came to Penn for my fellowship. And I 
pleaded with all of the people I was interviewing with that I'm absolutely sure I want to be a physician scientist and have a lab. And somehow you have to believe me, despite the fact that I don't have a PhD or have spent no more than a few months doing electives in the lab. So thankfully, they did believe me, and I began my fellowship at Penn. And in my and so my big now in the oncology department, hematology oncology department here at Penn. And I was very drawn to leukemia and leukemia management right since the beginning. And in the second year of my of my fellowship, I joined the I joined the laboratory of Mitch Weiss, who was at that point at CHOP. He's now the head of hematology at St. Jude, and his lab works on transcriptional regulation in erythropoiesis. So I joined his lab, did my postdoctoral fellowship in his lab at the same time was developing my clinical skills as a leukemia, acute and chronic myeloid leukemia specialist. And now I have my own lab and I'm a clinician scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. Oh my goodness. What a phenomenal story. Phenomenal. And the part that really intrigues me and really resonates with me is just your focus from the very beginning. You knew where you wanted to go. So it's like, you know, you, you, you knew exactly what your destination was going to be. Perhaps you didn't have the directions or you needed to kind of like take a detour or two to get there, but you were so focused. I wonder, you know, what was that? What, what helped you have that focus? I know your parents were physicians, but they weren't scientists. Like, where did that come from? My dad was, even though my dad wasn't a scientist, he was very interested in science. And so we had a lot of books about science at home. You know, and I used to read everything from Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking to books by Stephen Jay Gould to, you know, things about evolutionary biology, Richard Dawkins, Blind Watchmaker, Selfish Gene, et cetera. So I was reading all of these books as a kid. And I think there's just something about the unknown aspects of reality that fascinates me. There's just so much of the universe that we do not understand, so much of our own bodies and our own cells and their fundamental functioning that we simply do not understand. And I was just drawn towards those questions and I, I, I just wanted to explore them. It is so awesome to hear the excitement with which you speak. <laughs> it's like you're on, this, you're on this amazing adventure and you are, you're just, you're on, you know, you're not at your destination yet. You're still in progress and you're having a great time. Is that fair to say? Well, as I mentioned, you know, as a kid during my summer vacation, I was doing experiments in my bedroom. And so no one was paying me to do that work then. Now I'm being paid to do the exact same work. So of course I'm excited. I love it. It's so awesome. Okay. So all along you were gunning for this, this destination, becoming a clinician scientist. At what point did you finally realize that you had transitioned? When was it that you finally said, wow, I'm a clinician scientist? I think it probably happened a few, maybe about the second year of my postdoc or so. I felt that my, my PI, Mitch, during my postdoc was very, very willing to give me independence to pursue my own ideas. And so there was no fixed agenda in the lab. I wasn't running project, experiments or projects that he wanted me to pursue. His philosophy is to pretty much give everyone in the lab their own freedom and let them come up with their own ideas. And so I think very early in my postdoc, about maybe after the first six months or so I'd gone by, I realized that really I was just pursuing my own ideas. I was reading the literature. I was coming up with the questions I wanted to ask. And that's when I think I really felt like a, a scientist. And I think the part of the part of being a, cl a clinician scientist, I think, comes from the fact that if you're seeing patients with the same kinds of disorders, then there's a certain kind of intangible 
understanding of what aspects of biology are actively relevant in the clinical sphere, how medications or drugs or stresses in the clinical arena produce certain phenotypes that you can potentially try to recapitulate in the lab or that your lab experiments touch onto. And so I think it really was during my fellowship and postdoctoral period that it all crystallized together and I felt like a physician scientist. Wow, what an amazing experience you had. And and it's not common, Vikram. Like many fellows, especially postdoctoral fellows, are doing projects that their mentors have gifted them. And, and that's not a bad thing, but they don't have the opportunity to start leadership from the beginning. So you actually, while also doing your own experiments, were actually leading your research direction. And I think that's so unique. I wonder, what do you say to someone who is not in that is not in that same situation as you where they just have whatever is available in the lab. How can they also kind of grow their independence to be able to start leading early? What would you advise them? I think from a very practical point of view, I think every clinical fellow who wants to join the lab has to immediately cultivate a network of mentors that are outside of their lab mentor. And I think that to me is the single most important thing that you should do in order to get a variety of different sources of input and feedback on your ideas. Because once you enter a lab, it's quite possible that your initial ideas may not be very productive and they not, may not be the right ideas. On the other hand, it may be that you have a fantastic idea, but your mentor simply is unable to see it, or they feel like those ideas are a little too far outside the focus of where they want to lab, when they lab, want the lab to be. It was really useful for me to have a mentorship committee. And, you know, all of the fellows who enter labs are expected to have mentorship committees here at Penn. And the expectation is that you would present at the mentorship committee your ideas. You're not necessarily presenting what your PI has coached you to present, of course. You are a postdoc. You have to come up with your own independent ideas and you have to talk about your vision and how this fits into the clinical work you're doing. And eventually, and, you know, as time goes on, what will your faculty talk look like when you say, this is what I'm bringing to your institution as a clinician, as a scientist. How can you harmonize those two aspects of your work together and present a vision of what you're going to work on in the next five to 10 year period? And so I think from a very practical point of view, I would say having a wide variety of mentors. And also, I think at some level, being honest with yourself as well, whether the physician scientist pathway is right for you. It's not right for, I should say, based on my experience, it's not right for everyone. One of the reasons being that basic science research has an element of chance involved with it. You know, I think as clinicians, as long as we are aware of the literature and we are applying the standard of care and we are following particular clinical guidelines, beyond a certain point, the outcomes that individual patients will have are beyond our control. You know, there are some patients who will be able to cure. There are some patients, unfortunately, who we cannot cure. And some patients, you know, who were very, who will have very difficult outcomes under our care. But as long as you are doing the right thing, your career and its prog progress as a clinician does not depend upon the individual outcomes of patients. Whereas on the research side, there is a lot of luck involved. There may be two postdocs who get two different paralogs of the same gene family, and one of them gets a profound mouse phenotype and gets a very high impact paper, and the other one gets an extremely subtle phenotype, and they spend years trying to get it published, and it leads to a low impact paper, and then they are not as well positioned. And I think unless you're willing to put up with that kind of aspect of luck, and unless you're willing to pivot, and unless you're willing to as they say, know when to hold it, know when to fold it <laughs> on, the, on the basic science side. It's going to be very difficult to be a scientist because I think 
experiments not working out or negative results are just an intrinsic part of how science is done. So I, I do think that there has to be, that has to be an important reckoning that every, sci every potential scientist has to do for themselves. Uh, mm. what, they have to, first of all, be really interested and excited by a scientific question, but they have to be willing to deal with lots of failed experiments and lots of investigational directions that don't go anywhere. And if despite that, you are still enthusiastic about the questions that you're asking, then that's when you are, you are a scientist. I love it. I love it. You said many things. So one thing you said that I want to highlight is that is the importance of having a network of mentors. I think many times, and I'm not sure where this comes from in medicine, where it's like, there's just one mentor for me, but there's one mentor. And if things don't work, it may not be their mentor's fault. It may not be you. It just doesn't work. And, and I love what you're talking about, this need to have a mentoring network so that you know what, you have options. And in saying that, you're also talking about the importance of leading your own career. Like nobody's in charge of your career. You are. Absolutely. And if an experiment fails terribly, like you don't get to blame your mentor. You don't. I mean, nobody knows that it was going to happen that way. And so but your ability to say I'm in charge allows you to pick yourself up and say, where's the next opportunity? So it's interesting. You talk about luck. And I agree that there is an element of luck. There's also an element of flexibility. Also an element of recognizing when it's time to, as you said, fold the cards and move on. And, and an element of, of accepting the successes when they come as like, you know, I, I, it preparation, preparation met opportunity, right? It's not, it's not all luck, but it's like working hard and then seizing opportunities when they come, but also when the opportunities don't work out, finding a different direction as well. Absolutely. No, I completely, I completely agree with this. And I think one of the one of the wrong impressions about science that students and postdocs sometimes get from reading papers is when you read a paper, the findings in the paper are presented in this extremely logical progression as if they did the first experiment, they got an amazing result. Then they did the second experiment, got an amazing result. Great. Section number one, on, on, on to the next section. Then they did an RNA-seq and they picked one of those genes and they manipulated it and lo and behold, it rescued the phenotype. But what you don't see in any of these papers is how many different avenues the team pursued that did not go anywhere and how many negative results they had. And I think that is something you really actually don't understand until you have done it yourself and your results have given you negative results. And so I absolutely agree. The willingness to be flexible, the willingness to, again, at some point, take a step back and say, is this project working? Is this project within the big picture plans of what I want to do? Is, there, is this a time to pivot? Can I take this to my mentors and get guidance from them on what, what they would do in the, if they were in this situation? And also, why did I choose to be a scientist in the first place? What are the big picture questions that I'm interested in? And how can I move forward keeping those questions in mind? I, re I really, really, really appreciate that. And I feel like it can't be said enough. I think sometimes... And, and this is part of our training where our training is not very flexible as clinicians, right? You, you do med school, you end med school, you go to residency, you end residency, you do fellowship. You end, I mean, it's very prescribed. And so when you, when you start doing a research project and things are not quite working out, there is that sense of like, no, I'm committed to this. Let's see it through to the end. And as you say, there are times where you stop and say, mm, is it worth continuing this project? And, and you alluded to not just making the decision on your, on your own, but bringing in a team of mentors or a team of advisors to help you make that decision. I wonder if you want to speak to where do you get that flexibility from? Because we don't all have it. 
Oh, well, and are you asking me as a person or in general, how does one get flexibility? <laughs> well, I think I'm asking, to be honest, I feel like you, you've had to be flexible in your journey as you've pivoted so much. So in a sense, you've been practicing flexibility for a while, but I'm assuming that. So if you want to speak to how you got your flexibility, that would be great. And if, you know, I don't have the flexibility, what do I do? Where do I go to get it? Well, I suppose the one thing for myself that I could say is that there's one interesting feature sometimes we see in trainees where if their experiment is critiqued, they take that as critique of themselves. And I think one of the things that you have to realize as a scientist is the biggest skeptic for your data has to be you yourself, right? If you're getting an interesting result, you have to ask yourself, how could I be fooling myself? Do I have all of the right controls? Is it possible I'm leading myself down the garden path? And I think for me, I, I just think I'm an intrinsically, if I get an interesting result, I am the one who constantly thinks about the ways in which it could be wrong. And I find myself asking, how can I push at this in a different way? How can I approach it in a different way? What else can I do to ensure that what I'm getting is a truly a real result as opposed to some kind of spurious artifact? And as a result, I think, if an experiment doesn't work out or if a result doesn't hold up, well, the process worked. As in, I investigated it and I got a high confidence negative result. <laughs> and so I, I think for me, the success of an experiment is really not about whether you get what you want to see. It's about whether you can get a clear result. So given that, I think if, if that is your approach, then in general, it will probably help you in science long-term because the question isn't if the experiment going to validate the resulting conclusions you already had in mind from the very beginning. But can you find the truth of the system? And the truth may be a negative result. And you have to be prepared for that. That's, that's Those are really good points. I think that clinical training is not the same as research training. And many times, I think a lot of clinically trained people come come at it with that. It's like, well, I mean, there's a lot of subjective judgment in the clinical arena. And so there's sometimes right. the sense of, this judgment on my experiment is a judgment on me. But what you talk about, the need for skepticism is so important because you know what? If you're not skeptical, other people will be. And as soon as your paper Absolutely. leaves your lab and goes out to the reviewers, then you find out just how strong the skepticism is. So you're talking about the opportunity for people to question your work so you can question your work and do, the, do what is needed to really really make it rigorous, right? Because it's an opportunity to, to see what else are you missing. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think in some ways, sometimes there's an aspect of this that also bleeds over to the clinical side, you know, in the sense of when our patients have unfortunate outcomes, we do as doctors sometimes blame ourselves. Why did I not act on that one particular slightly high calcium a day earlier that I could have? Why did I not give a higher rate of fluids on a certain day as compared to others? And these are things that we always think about. And I think one of the things in clinical medicine that we learn about is you can, at the end of the day, you can only do your best, right? And you can only try to apply the standard of care and you can only try to be diligent and a conscientious doctor, but you cannot control the outcomes that you get to have to accept the outcomes that arise from any disease. And I think at some level, that's what science is like. You can try to do your best and you have to be willing to accept the outcomes. It's always good to have multiple different projects going so that if one particular one doesn't work out, there will always be others that you can, you can carry forward. But that may be one way in which there are some similarities, but clearly there are many differences as well. 
Thank you for those points. I also see this, you know, there's a love for what you do, but there's a healthy, my eyes are open. I'm not walking in the clouds. I'm like doing this wonderful experiment. And I have these other three potentially if this one doesn't work. So that's, that's really good. And I do think that more people need to understand that, you know what, you just don't know what's going to succeed. And so don't, don't focus on just one area. So that, that's really awesome. You know, it leads me to my other question. And this is around the fact that, goodness, you're so optimistic. You like pursued things and you succeeded and you're just having a great adventure. Has this been like just a walk in the park for you? If there have been any challenge challenges, what have they been? Well, it, it hasn't been a walk in the park. So there have certainly been places where I have had to. So I actually, let me walk you through my process of coming to the United States. So I applied for a residency from India and I applied to 120 residency programs and I got interviews at eight of which only one was a university program and that was Temple University Hospital. And it's my good fortune that I got into that program because as you know, you know, if you are in the community program, for instance, it is really difficult to transition from that into an academic environment and and end up with the research career. So that was definitely not an easy transition, but things ended up working out there. And then during my postdoc, actually the first project that I was working on ended up not work, not, not going in the direction that I wanted. And I ended up getting actually a, a high impact negative publication <laughs> because it went against something that was considered to be more of a accepted dogma in the field. But it did lead me to a point where I had to pivot my scientific direction. And so midway through my postdoc, I had to find a different project and I had to develop the resources to be able to get it to a point where I could get another paper out and I could, when I was applying for faculty positions, come up with sort of a vision of what my, how this project would help me set up my lab. And I, as a result, my postdoc was perhaps a little longer than some of my colleagues, but that was fine because at the end of the day, it helped me get where I wanted to get. I love it. You are master of the pivot. And so what I'm hearing you say is that, yes, you had challenges and for every challenge, you kind of got up and found a different way. You, you, you've kind of been the person who's always getting up again and saying, what, what other direction can I go in? Is that fair to say? Right. I mean, I guess another way to think about it would be I am extremely privileged that I am genuinely doing the work that I love doing. Right. So given that, making changes, changing a scientific direction, changing a project, accepting that, oh, I, this project didn't work out, or perhaps I need to spend another year doing X, Y, and Z. Those are small prices to pay if at the end of the day, I get to do what I love doing. I appreciate you saying that because I think that's so important for really all clinicians and really all clinician researchers. And, and I wonder, how did we get to be able to tolerate misery? not doing the things we actually enjoy doing. And I, and I really do think that's important. And I wonder if you want to speak to it. So as young people are coming in, like people are trying to get publications because it helps them get into residency or fellowship. And they want to say they had a lab experience. What, how, how, do you, how do you advise people who are coming through now as trainees who are trying to do all the things, get all the check boxes, but also hopefully eventually end up where they love? What, what do they do? That's a, that's a difficult question because I don't think there's a single right answer to it. I, I, I do find that, you know, often when I'm talking to 
fellows or residents. I ask them if, and let's say they approach me or someone else for a rotation project, or they want my guidance on which kind of lab they should pick. I ask them, do you genuinely want to do the lab because you enjoy answering questions? Or is it just because you want to have that as a line in your CV so it can help you in the next phase of your career? And uh, it's really important, I think, for trainees to be honest about this because sometimes uh, an example in oncology is, you know, in general, there are, you can think of two big career paths if you're, if you're doing research in oncology. It's the basic science lab-based, or you can think of clinical trials. And there are trainees sometimes who enter a lab, but in their heart of hearts, they are not absolutely sure that that's what they want to do. And so they spend the two years of fellowship, two years of research time of fellowship, pursuing a project somewhat half-heartedly, it doesn't work out. But then at the same time, they might have spent their time better in getting a clinical trial up and running. And so what happens is they reach the end of their fellowship and they don't have a basic science project that's really working out and they don't have a clinical trial that's well-established. And so now they're in a real fix in terms of when they apply for an academic position, exactly what, what are they going to sell their career as? And so Sometimes it happens that they will then purely do a clinical research career, and that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong in being 100% or 80% clinical. But if that wasn't your original goal, then in some ways, you, you have to reflect on whether you have used this trainee time optimally to, to, advance your, to advance your career. And so I would say the first goal is to identify if this is really, really, really what you want to do. One way to do this is to talk to others who have pursued this track before you and learn the positives as well as the pitfalls of this career track. And then, yes, you know, if you're sure, then dive into it and give you everything to that track. Yeah, that's really, really, really great advice. And I do wish that more people heard that. I think sometimes, and, and perhaps again, it goes back to the training of Medical school, there's just the path. And after four years or five or six, you're done. And then residency, it's like, this is the track. And then people feel like fellowship, it's the same thing. The fellowship is unique because it's the it's a transition point. And so if ever you are not doing anything you didn't care about, fellowship is not the time to just kind of dabble in things you're not interested in. Because at the end, as you mentioned, you can lose both ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I really think fellowship is not a dabbling time. I think by fellowship, you really have to have a pretty clear idea. If, if, for instance, in oncology, when, when you're coming in for fellowship, you don't need to know if you want to become a breast cancer or a lung cancer or a GI cancer specialist. That you can figure out. What is important to know is, do you see yourself long-term as someone who's going to run their own lab? Do you see yourself as someone who's doing mostly clinical work, but is connected with the lab person? Do you see yourself interested in epidemiology, you know, and statistics? That's like another direction you can go in. Or do you see yourself as someone running clinical trials? I do think it's important either by the beginning of fellowship or at least six months within the first start of your fellowship to figure this out. So you can position yourself well for the remaining two to three precious years of your fellowship. Absolutely. I wonder though, Vikram, I, I, how do people get that certainty? Because I feel like there's so much, in a sense, chameleoning and shape-shifting throughout training. And so how do you now suddenly get to fellowship and, and be clear on your direction? How do people get that? I think one of the ways in this may be ch in, in which this is changing is I think we have a decent amount of contact with residents these days talking about our career pathways and the career tracks. And so I sometimes am invited to talk to the internal medicine residency program about a physician scientist track and what it's like. And I'm constantly urging residents that residency is really 
busy and most of your time is spent in catching up with the sleep that you've lost after being on overnight call. But please keep thinking from your internal year itself about what the shape of your career is going to look like. Don't fixate on specialties and subspecialties. That is less important than the contours of your career and exactly what kind of work you want to be, what kind of doctor you want to be, what kind of clinician or clinician researcher or clinician epidemiologist or basic scientists you want to be. And I think may perhaps more emphasis in residency to figuring that out, perhaps in some kind of formalized way. I don't know, perhaps residency programs could implement questionnaires or something like that to help people score what are the different things they want to get out of the career and then trying to come up with some kind of career counseling. I'm, I'm thinking of the top of my head, but I can imagine one way in which residents could be formally exposed to and trained early to pick between one of these different approaches so that they can then get everything lined up for when they begin fellowship. I love it. I love how you talk about the shape of your career. It's not, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not like locking yourself in. You're just figuring out what are the contours? I really love that term. It's just, it's just, what does it look like? It's a big blob you're, or it's like a big piece of stone. You're chiseling out the statue, but what, what does it look like? What's the shape? I, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. So we are coming towards the end of the show. And I will say that, gosh, we've, we've learned so much from you. I feel like it's just been just, there's been so much packed in and, and there's still so much, I think that we could yet talk about, but I want to ask you when you think about this whole pathway, this whole journey as a clinician scientist, what haven't we talked about that's important for younger people to know? That's a good question. <laughs> Actually, I think we talked about so much that I wonder if there's anything specific I have left to say. But I guess the one thing I would say in response to this question is, it, and it doesn't apply to me, but I think in the past, especially for women in science, having children and taking maternity leave was considered to be a real detriment to your scientific career. And that is definitely changing. And so I think there's a lot of recognition that, you know, maternity time, paternity time is going to be part of your scientific career. Penn definitely allows you to add extra years to your tenure clock, for example, as a faculty member, if you have kids. And so I think that is something that I, 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 I hope that, I hope that women in science don't shy away from the physician scientist track, thinking that maternity leave or maternity is anyway going to compromise their success. Because I think there's a lot more recognition of this. There are lots of resources for this. And I think as we, as we are increasingly seeing more women in leadership positions as chairs of divisions, including basic science divisions, which necessarily might not have been the case maybe like 10, 15 years ago. I do think that this is an important, important aspect of science that is shifting. And so I suppose that's the one thing I would say that I hope, I hope scientists don't choose or not choose physician scientist tracks for very re reasons about the logistics about family life and concerns that that may not allow them to achieve what they really should be able to achieve. I really appreciate you saying that. I think really even speaking more broadly, it's like, don't think that there are barriers that are insurmountable. Don't make the choice based on those barriers because, you know, you see the obstacles and, and, and for whatever case you have, you have ideas about what those obstacles are. So don't make the decision based on obstacles you perceive there is opportunity to, to push past those obstacles. I, I think all of science is about pushing past obstacles. So that's, that's really, really important that you, you raise that. And thank you for doing that. 
All right. Well, I want to say thank you for being on the show. I really do appreciate your insights. I will tell you that I appreciate and enjoy your enthusiasm for your work. You clearly are on a great adventure that's not without its challenges. You just choose to see them as opportunities to move in different directions. And I think that that optimism, that ex that enthusiasm and that just flexibility and practicality is is key and and that people really should be looking to to engage those skills to be able to really succeed in this career. Thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And it, I, I, I appreciate your insight and everything you bring to this conversation as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, everybody. That was an amazing conversation. And I, I think so many people need to hear it. This, this path can be challenging, but, but really, how do we choose to see it? How do we choose to move forward? How do we choose to address pitfalls? These are things that, that Dr. Parakar really in, elaborated on for us. So please, if there's someone you know who would benefit from hearing this podcast episode, please share it with them. If you're a mentor, your mentees probably need to hear it. If you're a mentee, your network needs to hear this. So definitely share this episode. All right, we'll see you next time on the Clinician Researcher Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries change the way we do healthcare.